Our lesson this morning comes from verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? If you want to keep your Bibles open to Micah 6, we'll be referring back and forth to that uh, numerous times this morning. And we think about some important traits that God wants from those who are followers of Him. You think about that question, what does the Lord require of you? I like to compare that to what does the world ask of us? You think about what the world wants from those who are living in it. The world wants us to think like they think, which is basically how God wants us to do it. He wants us to think as He thinks. But the problem with what we find when we look at how God thinks and believes and what what He teaches through His Word and how it's so strongly contrasted with that of the world. We find the world, when we think and act like they do, it actually ruins mankind. It's interesting to think about all the different things that are going on in the world around us today. Too many really just to even number and count all the things that are going on that we are concerned about and worried about, not only for ourselves but for our children and those who will come after them as well. We think about what the world would ask of us. We think about what God asks of us and what the Lord requires of us. There are two far different things. The world asks us to condone wickedness, evil, and all types of darkness in every shape and form you could possibly begin to imagine. Yet what God requires of us are things that are not only good for us and that will build us up and make us better people as a whole, but also will affect others around us in a positive way. We look at what the world requests of us. Not only is it detrimental to us, but it's like a disease that hurts everyone who it touches. Whereas what God requires of us only uplifts and encourages those who follow after Him and listen to His words. Let's back up for just a moment as we look at some things for us to consider as we look at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, which will be, again, our key text for this morning. Chapter 6 is an admonition of God to Israel. And we find in this chapter statements and questions continuing a verse that shows what is good and what the Lord requires of us. And we find in verse 6 some things that are being asked that the Lord does not require of us, nor did the Lord require of this individual. He says, What shall I come with what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What we find here are glimpses of extremism, things which he knows the Lord would not require of him, nor of us. He says there, he begins in verse 6 by mentioning some things that the Lord would require of those in the Old Testament law. But then in verse 7, he begins listing things the Lord does not require, or things that would not satisfy the Lord. He says in verse 6, by saying, With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? You think about that question. With what shall I come before the Lord? When we get up on the Lord's Day every Sunday morning, and when we get ready to come and to be a part of a Bible class or be a part of a worship service, what are some of the thought processes that go on in our mind? I think about this verse in verse 6. It's really the idea of how we come before God, how He is to approach God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
What could he come before God with and God be pleased with? You think about that each and every day, each and every Lord's Day when we come to worship God. Are we coming before our great and awesome God in such a way that it's pleasing to Him? He says, shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That is, shall He come before God bringing sacrifices? Well, we should come before God bringing sacrifices, shouldn't we? Sacrificing ourselves to live in such a way that's pleasing to God. Living sacrifices, as Paul saw it there in the book of Romans. To give up things that are sinful, that will separate us from God, or that we can be pleasing to God and have heaven as our home. We come before God with a broken heart, a heart that is humble before Him. He goes on to say here in verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with not just a ram, but He says thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil. He's saying there's some things that God wants much more than rams or oil. And he goes to the extreme by saying, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The Lord never asked for a human sacrifice, not once in the Bible, except for the, with the temptation, or rather I should say the, the testing of, of Isaac and Jacob, right? When we think about that, we know the Lord does not actually require that to be done. And we find here in this context, he's not requiring him to do so, but he's using extremism to show this is not what God wants. He's not wanting simply these these offerings to be brought before him. Sometimes, I want to read verses 6 and 7, thinking about how this gospel can point to those who simply, when they come together to worship God, they look at it as five acts of worship, and then they go through those motions, and then that's it. Hey, I've done what I'm supposed to do. And that's how we talked about here, right? I'm supposed to bring a burnt offering, right? I'm supposed to bring a calf a year old. What if I said I brought, he says, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And then he gets to verse, verse 8, and he begins to ask that question. He has shown you, O man, what is good, meaning he's answering this question. God has shown you what he requires of you, right? And what does the Lord require of you? And that's the rhetorical question. And he answers by saying, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You think about that this morning. We think about that question, what does the Lord require? There are certain things that the Lord requires of us. If we're going to live and, and be living before Him in a way that's pleasing to Him. You think about growing up, your parents, they probably didn't call it requirements. We had, sometimes we called it house rules. Sometimes we just called them chores. Sometimes those things we had to do each and every day before we could do anything else. This is what you had to do. Well, we think about this phrase here. What does the Lord require of you? As he says there in verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does the Lord require of you? When we get up every day, not just the Lord's day, but when we get up in, during the week, on the weekday, have you ever thought, what can I do for God today? What can I do for the church today? Because each and every day, if we're honest, the Lord does things for us, things that we probably most of the time are completely oblivious to. He gives us life. He gives us blessings. He gives us shelter. He gives us all, all these things that many times we just, if we're not careful, we take him for, for, you know, for, take advantage of those things. It's interesting, many times when someone is injured, they say, well, I never knew how much I knew uh, I needed this, whatever, body part, until I heard it. 
And I saw something online the other day, a man talking about how he didn't—he would never take his ankle for granted because he had just recently broken his ankle, and he clearly had had surgery on it. He said, I'll never take it for granted again. Do we take for granted the things the Lord does for us each and every day? Then ask yourself the question when we think about here in verse 8, what does the Lord require of us? Ask yourselves, is He asking too much of us? If we're honest and if we're humble, we'll find that answer is no, the Lord does not ask too much of us. What does the Lord require of you? He tells us here in verse 8 to do justly. He says, what does the Lord require of you to do justly? Do references their idea of things which you are to action, right? Things which you do are done in a way that are just, are fair, are balanced. The word here has to do with just judgment and justice, especially concerning the ordinances of God. We do what? We do things fairly and justly. We treat God's word fairly and justly. This means judgment as in, as in the act of deciding, also deciding the case. When we give to God what is his due, then we might, then, then we meet right judgment as well. To do justly is the proper application of the law. That is, to do justly as you do God's word. You cannot say you're living justly and then just not do what the Bible says. I mean, you can. You'll be a liar, but you can do it. People say all the time, don't they? I'm a Christian, but just don't live like one. They're saying I'm living justly, but they're not doing it. To do justly is the proper application of the law. Looking at Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 19, he says, You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Boy, we've seen that play out about a thousand times in our life, haven't we? In every area of life, we've seen it touch. The idea of being unjust. We're talking about politics, which we all know, if we're honest, is unjust in so many ways. We could be here all day talking about it. But not only that, there are a lot of unjust things that go on throughout our life that we have to learn how to deal with. But a Christian, even though we have to deal with the, un, the unjust acts of others, doesn't mean we, we have to behave in an unjust way. Notice what he says here in verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. He tells us there, he gives us three examples of ways in which we can be just by not showing partiality, not taking a bribe, not perverting justice, which really this is ways in which people pervert justice. Fairness across the board is how we would say that, right? You realize how much different that is from what we see around us today? Fairness and balance for people today is very, well, their idea of fairness and balance is not fairness or balance at all. But the Christian, if we want to be pleasing to God, if we want to do what the Lord requires of us, we will do justly. We will do just things. We will live in a, in a uh, just manner, a way that is good and pleasing in the sight of God, a way that is we are treating others correctly, fairly. This is not condoning sin, but it's treating people as God would have us treat, treat them. Treat them all the same. We treat sin in someone's life the same way we treat sin in anyone else's life. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. Then you notice what he says here in the part of verse 19. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Isn't that true also of partiality? 
We say bribe blinds the eyes, and in that sense that it changes people's view when they're bribed, but partiality is the same thing, doesn't it? We treat person A different from person B, and they both do the same thing. We treat person A differently. What are you doing? You're saying there is no true justice. You ever hear the phrase, it's all in who you know? That's not justice, is it? Sometimes you hear people say, well, I know a guy who probably help you with that. Sometimes that's not justice either, is it? We are to be those who show no partiality, who do not pervert justice, but do what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And then we are to love mercy, he says here in verse 8. To do justly, to love mercy. Mercy means to give goodness, kindness, and faithfulness to your, to your judgment and justice. You know, mercy, you can tell someone what they need to hear and also show mercy at the exact same time. Mercy sometimes is not telling some, giving someone a lighter sentence, but telling them in a kinder way. You know, you think about how many times the Lord uses parables in the New Testament. He tells them the truth. In some ways, those parables are much kinder, and other times those, those parables are pretty correct. But he shows mercy because he's using ways in which they can understand what he's trying to teach them. Mercy means to give goodness, kindness, and faithfulness to your judgments and justice. There are words that go with mercy, kindness, benevolence, love. And Jesus was a person who showed mercy and who taught mercy as well. As you find in Matthew 5 and verse 7, we said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What's he doing? He's still teaching us to be merciful. If you want to have mercy and find mercy, you yourself have to be merciful as well. Sometimes that means giving people what they do not deserve. And also sparing them from what they do deserve. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you think about Luke 16 and verse 24, we have to realize that Sometimes we have to give mercy while we can, and other times we have to ask for mercy while we still can't ask for mercy, when we can still ask for mercy. You look at, uh, uh, we'll get to Luke 16 in just, just a second. We look at Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, for you pay the tithes that meant to anus and coming and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I forgot I had that one in there. Luke 16, 24. Now, here we go. Uh, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of the, his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. What is he asking for? He's asking for mercy. The problem is, it's already too late to receive mercy, isn't it? Because where is he? Where is he in torments? There's no mercy in torments. You ask for mercy before, it's too late. We ask for mercy by obeying the gospel. We ask for mercy by repenting of our sins. We ask for mercy before our life is over. In Luke 16, 24, the rich man Lazarus, their life was over. There was no time to ask for mercy now. It's too late. There's also no time to give mercy, was it? He couldn't, he, could he give that mercy he was, he was requesting? Could he dip, you know, uh, have Lazarus dip his, his finger in water and cool the tip of his tongue for him? No. It's too late for mercy. We are to do justly, to love mercy. Then notice this last phrase here in verse 8. He says, and to walk humbly with thy God. 
to walk humbly. Walk is a reference to how we live. We are to live in a humble way before God. Walk humbly with thy God. Humbly means to be humble, to be modest, to be lowly, to show humility. There's a lot of different ways you can define humble or humility. Basically, it's the idea of not thinking too highly of oneself. Think about Hosea chapter 6. In verse 6, he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What does he desire? Mercy, knowledge of God. Compare that to 1 Samuel 15, 22. So Samuel said, Has the Lord... Has the Lord as great great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than, than the fat of rams. What does God want from us? To know Him and to walk in step with Him. To walk humbly with thy God. You go back to the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us about a man named Enoch, who the Bible says he walked with God. That means he walked in step with God's command. He obeyed God, therefore he walked with him. If we are to, going to walk with God, we first have to be obe- ones who have obeyed the gospel, and second, we're going to walk humbly with God, it means we have to make sure that we have a humble head on our shoulders, that we remember who we are. Walk humbly with thy God. I think we could add there, without going against the Bible here, that we should walk humbly with God all the days of our lives, shouldn't we? Walk humbly with God. Also think about Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, brings himself down, swallows their pride, remembers who they are before God. He says, whoever humbles himself as this little child, a child is oftentimes used as an example of being completely and totally innocent. Without arrogance, without pride, just innocence. And we're, what are we to do? We are to be humble and bring ourselves to the humble level of a child. And he said, then we'll what? We'll have, he says, that this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We want to be humble so that we can be what? One who walks with God correctly. If a person is proud, are they very likely to listen to God's word? Are they more likely to fight against it? Are they more likely to argue about it? You know, education in, in the scriptures, when I say this, I mean a lot of times uh, referencing those who go to institutions of, of higher learning, so to speak, and they come out and they get their various degrees. But what we see sometimes, not every time, so don't misunderstand me, but what we see a lot of times are those who begin to, to have a lot of faith in their degree and believe that they now know the Bible more than what others may, may know, and they can just tell people what the Bible says themselves, even though what they are saying it's completely and totally wrong. That's not walking humbly before God. No matter what letters are before our name or what education we may have, we don't walk humbly with God, friends. It does not matter. We cannot be proud and boastful and arrogant and walk humbly with God. James 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. We reference this many times as a time where when we're in sin, we humble ourselves before God, we go to God in prayer, and He will lift us up through that difficult time. That is correct. That will happen if we will do that. But we also, if we find ourselves are, are living in such a way that we're arrogant before God about anything, 
If we will humbly come to God, He will lift us up. And if no one can lift us up and encourage us better than God. If we want to be exalted, let God be the one who does it. There's nothing worse than an arrogant person, and sometimes we're not careful. We can be that person, but we can also correct that if we are that person. So thanks for us to think about today. If you think about what God desires of us, I think we also have to compare that to what the world desires for man. The world's desires for man can bring about his ruin. What does the world want from us? To accept anybody and anything and just be quiet about it, right? That's the gist of it all. The Bible doesn't teach that at all, though, does it? Man's sinners of necessity place unnecessary strain on man as well. We are under constant strain from the world to accept all types of wickedness and sin. And if we do so, we actually go against God. Man's concept of mercy favors the wicked, not the righteous. It favors the wicked, not the righteous. God's concept of mercy, God's teaching of mercy, favors those who are righteous and obedient and loyal to Him, not the wicked. God never blesses the wicked. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, but does not mean that they receive the same blessings as those who obediently follow God. God's desires for man are beneficial for mankind. God's desires for man are beneficial for mankind. I mean, they actually do us good. You can hear some of the worldly advice on television people give. If you're listening to some of these talk shows, I'm not encouraging to do so, but sometimes if you catch some of that on various places, they have them on when you're in certain waiting areas or whatever. But you hear some of those things, and you read some of their comments about the advice you're giving people, and some of the most ridiculous advice you could ever see. You know, just because people are on a television show with the word doctor before their name, or someone has a television show or a column in their magazine, doesn't mean that their knowledge is actually good and right. It doesn't mean anything. God's desires for man are beneficial for mankind, unlike that of the world so many times. God's desires for man result in spiritual blessings. Result in spiritual blessings. Ephesians chapter 1. Man is not only made better but also saved from the stain of sin by following God. Man is not only made better, but we are saved from the stain of sin. You think about what God requires of us. Go back to Micah 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Are any of those things beyond our reach? No. Not beyond our reach. Is the idea of trying to live to, to do justly, is that idea going to haunt you to the degree that you stay up at night? Probably not. Is the idea of trying to love mercy and be merciful to others, is that going to keep you up at night? Probably not. Is the idea of walking humbly with your God going to keep you up at night? Only if you don't want to. But the idea, the idea and concept of, of embracing the sins of the world around us, which the world wants us to do, does that keep you up at night? Is that what brings nightmares into your mind, thinking about what the world wants us to accept and tolerate and to promote and to even embrace? Those things should keep us up at night. But following God should not be what keeps us up at night. We should be concerned about those around us, but God's Word and what He requires of us 
should not be, as the Bible tells us, we should not view them as being burdensome. God blesses those who have the standards found in Micah 6 and verse 8. Those who want to do just, justly, those who love mercy, and those who want to walk humbly with their God. You know, you think about those three things, and they're pretty, they're really pretty broad, if we're honest. But they encompass a whole lot of the Christian life, don't they? If we do justly, we're going to treat others as we like to be treated, the golden rule, right? Do unto others if you have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself, which we talked about in Bible class this morning. To love mercy, doing what? It means we're going to be with those who forgive one another, who are patient and kind with one another. It sounds a lot like James. To walk humbly with your God sounds like Revelation 2 and verse 10, right? To fill him death and I'll give you the crown of life. So much of these three aspects encompass the majority, if not all, we could say, of the Christian life. So when you think about that question, in verse 8, what does the Lord require of you? The question we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do what the Lord requires of us? Are we willing to listen to God's word and to live in such a way that's pleasing to Him? To live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. We want to be those who strive to live up to this standard from God. We want to live up to God's standard of right and wrong and not man's. You know, what's interesting about the Bible, among many other things, obviously, is that it hasn't changed over the years. It stays exactly the same. How many times have you found yourself saying, boy, I remember the good old days in certain situations? I remember when, when we used to do things like this, or we used to do things like this, or I remember when this is the law and these things were not allowed. You know, in God's Word, we don't have to remember the good old days. It stays the same all the way through. God has always required us to do justly. He's always required us to love mercy. He's always required us to walk humbly with Him. But let's be those to do those very things. This morning we can help you and encourage you in your way. We'd love to do so. Let's get we stand and sing the song that's been selected.